Mutability. Welcome to Nature's Lead. This is a podcast available at naturesleed.com that both examines and inspires a certain approach towards life that is based both on personal philosophies and on the writings of people such as Emerson and Thoreau. Please send any feedback to info at naturesleed.com. This is Series 1, Episode 10, Assimilation of Spirit. All right, welcome again. Through the first nine episodes, I have not discussed Thoreau or Emerson extensively, so today I thought I would dive into some Emerson by reading some excerpts from Man the Reformer. So we'll get to that in a second, but first, today's random window. I like kicking rocks in the parking lot. They invariably end up in your path, having leapt for freedom from their prisons of pseudo-nature carved into the asphalt between angular white stripes held in place by walls of colorless cement. So there they rest, exhausted from their escape, as I come along and take deliberate aim with my swinging foot. The challenge and excitement for me is to see if I can kick them ahead to a place still on my path. If successful, I swing into them again. If not, they take refuge along a curb or hop up into some grass, never to be involved again. On to the main topic, assimilation of spirit. Emerson is my favorite writer-slash-philosopher of all time. He didn't write long stories with wonderful, immersive plots, nor did he write plays to be acted out in vivid real life for all future generations. In these areas, he's a bit dry. In fact, that's why I label him with the slash-philosopher qualifier. He just comes out and tells you exactly what he believes in, and he gives you examples and analogies all throughout his writing to illuminate it and to prove it out. Sure, I'd love for it to be wrapped inside of a gripping pastoral epic that had immortalized characters who would carry his ideas through the ages with them, such as Hamlet, but where he wins me over is how most everything he says hits me in the heart and mind as being true to how I've always felt, true to what I've always secretly and privately believed. This first happened to me in 11th grade here in America, where Thoreau and Emerson were a part of the curriculum. When I first read his words, it was stunning to me. As a boy like I was, you somewhat believed that your private feelings about yourself and the world around you were unique, and you held on to them tight as not to be embarrassed, to fit in, so to speak. I've always had, even to this day, two personas— my public social face, and my introspective private face. Now, I'm sure this is true for many of you as well, and I hope that many of you have had the pleasure of seeing your thoughts reflected somewhere, as I've mentioned in a previous episode, either in literature or in the words and thoughts of someone in history or the present. There's a great familiar friendship forged by such an experience. I was never looking for justification or affirmation in how I felt, But the accidental discovery was life-changing nonetheless. And I love that he wasn't popular. I love that he and other romantic writers over in Europe were relegated to the scholars by the populace over time in favor of novels and other more rich entertainment experiences. It made him private and personal for me. If somehow Hemingway spoke to my true self, then I'm dealing with a publicly well-known figure. The personal nature of it is somewhat diminished or at least for me anyway. I'm sure there's others that wouldn't feel that way. So let me now talk a little about Emerson and his place as a great American writer-slash-philosopher. 
I believe I mentioned this in a previous episode, but Emerson's speech to students at Harvard entitled The American Scholar was labeled by Oliver Wendell Holmes as America's Intellectual Declaration of Independence. This work by Emerson was a follow-up to many of the philosophies established in his essay, Nature, from the previous year. Together, these two works were revolutionary in that they weren't following in the European literary tradition as most previous successful American writers had done. Emerson was looking at nature and human beings with raw, unfiltered light. Now that takes me down a path of thought that I will pursue more in a future episode, but I instead want to now dip into some of his writing. I'm going to read some bits and pieces from Man the Reformer, which was also a speech like many of his works. He was a great orator and spoke with sincere passion that inspired people, but if you haven't read anything from him before, I'll warn you that he's a bit dense. But he's not dense in in the traditional scholarly sense. He's dense in that he's intricately uncovering, through an involved and detailed composition of words, a whole new way to look at the world. Here's many lines where he speaks of, quote, practical impediments that stand in the way of virtuous young men. Also, please remember, this is coming from 175 years ago, and the constant references to man and men shouldn't hinder what we all can take away from it. Here we go. The young man, on entering life, finds the way to lucrative employments blocked with abuses. The ways of trade are grown selfish to the borders of theft and supple to the borders, if not beyond the borders, of fraud. The employments of commerce are not intrinsically unfit for a man, or less genial to his faculties, but these are now, in their general course, so vitiated by derelictions and abuses at which all connive that it requires more vigor and resources than can be expected of every young man to right himself in them. He is lost in them. He cannot move hand or foot in them. Has he genius and virtue? the less does he find them fit for him to grow in. And if he would thrive in them, he must sacrifice all the brilliant dreams of boyhood and youth as dreams. He must forget the prayers of his childhood and must take on him the harness of routine and obsequiousness. If not so minded, nothing is left him but to begin the world anew as he does who puts the spade into the ground for food. Tough words. Uh, Although this may sound negative, I actually am uplifted by this kind of analysis. There's a wonderful freedom in seeing our world through fresh eyes. Some may see this as motivation to react or rebel, but even Emerson speaks against this later in this work. And as I've said before, the progression of these thoughts I share isn't heading toward a rebellious activist approach, but they are instead intended to help us as individuals, as members of the community and as participants within nature. I like how he describes how commerce has, quote, grown selfish to the borders of theft. This is exactly what turns me off about the corporate world so often. Of course, realize that I work in that world, so its existence and power in society is in front of my face daily. But his words are so precise. It's not fully in the territory of theft, but the way business is often transacted it certainly swaggers elusively along its border. A bit later, he becomes more descriptive of our system of commerce. 
I contend myself with the fact that the general system of our trade is a system of selfishness, is not dictated by the high sentiments of human nature, is not measured by the exact law of reciprocity, much less by the sentiments of love and heroism, but is a system of distrust, of concealment, of superior keenness, not of giving, but of taking advantage. It is not that which a man delights to unlock to a noble friend, which he meditates on with joy and self-approval in his hour of love and aspiration, but rather what he then puts out of sight, only showing the brilliant result and atoning for the manner of acquiring by the manner of expending it. I do not charge the merchant or the manufacturer. The sins of our trade belong to no class, to no individual. One plucks, one distributes, one eats. Everybody partakes. Everybody confesses. With cap and knee volunteers his confession, yet none feels himself accountable. He did not create the abuse. He cannot alter it. What is he? An obscure private person who must get his bread. That is the vice, that no one feels himself called to act for man, but only as a fraction of man. It happens, therefore, that all such ingenuous souls as feel within themselves the impressible strivings of a noble aim, who by the law of their nature must act simply, find these ways of trade unfit for them, and they come forth from it. I love the line that says, quote, atoning for the manner of acquiring by the manner of expending it. Does that not describe such a large part of American society? We are so often measured by our things, by our luxuries, and we are not as often judged by how we acquired the money for these things. If a person is dressed in a nice suit and arrives in a convertible Mercedes, he is somehow more important than the guy in sweats riding in on a moped. The Mercedes guy may have half-cheated many families into unsustainable loans, and the moped guy may volunteer at the hospital and teach at the local elementary school. Yet initial judgments are made by many people on first sight. The Mercedes guy is legitimate, and the moped guy is, to some, a bit of a question mark. And to the Mercedes guy and many of his friends, the fact that he has accumulated all of these things is enough in their minds to legitimize his life. Now much of this deals with the conducting of business, but as Emerson continues later on in the speech, this idea of going along with the herd carries on to our modes of living and all the accoutrements we collect. The duty that every man should assume his own vows, should call the institutions of society to account and examine their fitness to him, gains an emphasis if we look at our modes of living. Is our housekeeping sacred and honorable? Does it raise and inspire us, or does it cripple us instead? I ought to be armed by every part and function of my household, by all my social function, by my economy, by my feasting, by my voting, by my traffic. Yet I am almost no party to any of these things. Custom does it for me, gives me no power therefrom, and runs me in debt to boot. We spend our incomes for paint and paper, for a hundred trifles, I know not what, and not for the things of a man. Our expense is almost all for conformity. It is for cake that we run in debt. Tis not the intellect, not the heart, not beauty, not worship that costs so much. 
Why needs any man be rich? Why must he have horses, fine garments, handsome apartments, access to public houses, and places of amusement? Only for want of thought. Give his mind a new image, and he flees into a solitary garden or garret to enjoy it, and is richer with that dream than the fee of a county could make him. Now, I certainly am caught up with the luxuries of our day, and I do probably acquire many things, primarily due to the pressures of conformity. But I'm not hinting at getting rid of those things, and even Emerson argues later that he doesn't expect everyone to throw everything out. What's important here, as always, is to see it for what it is, because then, in a certain way, we are mentally free, released to more accurately feel what we want and need as individuals. One simple line from this excerpt that I think reveals so much about our world is where he says, quote, Our expense is almost all for conformity. In that light, I often wonder how many of my efforts in the corporate world are for a similar aim, to achieve as expected. I do know this, though. I need to remain separated in my mind, to remember who I truly am, in order to avoid, at all costs, the assimilation of spirit. That brings us to a close, so until next time, I wish you well, and don't forget to follow nature's lead.